This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Previously on Increment Vice. Ladies and gents, hippies and hitmen, sax players and government snitches, feds and flatlanders alike, welcome to Increment Vice. I saw it and I utterly and immediately adored it. Because I feel that a lot of my love of this movie and why I'm actually a little nervous to be talking about it is that I I don't want to deconstruct it. I don't want to, because I don't know if I can exactly. Yeah. And I feel like I'm constantly grasping, which is why I love it so much and why I keep returning to it. Or it seems to be a very conventional noir in its structure and its approach, but it's also informing you like, this film is not supposed to make sense. The entire point of the mystery it's not going to make sense. And you get that the moment you hear someone is technically Jewish but wants to be a Nazi. I wonder if I'll ever rewatch this movie again. <laughs> I guess you're watching it so many times. I'm sort of like, I wonder if it's going to need another five years with me. And it's something that you learn when you're crafting mysteries that a little bit of coincidence is okay. And mm -hmm. in fact, it, it suggests these great things at work. Yeah, when you live through that, when you live through an era where everybody's crazy, where it's all kind of crazy, how how do you stay sane? How, what do you hold on to? What's your anchor and I think decency is a really good answer. I think Doc is, for him, that's the one gesture. One of the similarities between, say, a druggy movie or story and a hard-boiled detective story is the they're both about finding the interconnectedness of everything. The Part of the reason I requested this scene is it's, it's one of the moments in cinema from the last decade that has stayed with me the longest because <laughs> I love, I actually love chocolate-covered bananas. I, usually... and I feel like we all have a suspicion that there's larger forces going on that we can't control um, that are orchestrating things in a way that we can't even see. And I, I like that he kind of, again, oriented it in this sort of female gaze along with male gaze. I, I do like the way that those two things complement each other in the movie. But Roland just really, I think he really dug down like incredibly deep to mm -hmm. give this layered, very nuanced, very pathos-driven performance. And for me, part of the appeal of Inherent Vice versus a movie like, say, Chinatown, which I also love, um, but, you know, Chinatown, the plotting is like a Swiss watch. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it very, it's very clear. There's a lot of – it's very complicated, but there's a lot of clarity to it. And I think they each have different appeals, and they're each equally valid. And I think part of the appeal of Chinatown is that it gives shape to life's mysteries and complexities. And I think part of the appeal of Inherent Vice is that it respects life's mysteries and complexities. He's <laughs> sucking that banana down, man. Yeah, but, and I gotta uh, tell you, those those don't taste very good. Those bananas. I, I'm. You know what? I bless my guests. When I listened that, yeah, yeah. When I listened to that episode, I I was really shocked at your your displeasure with the chocolate covered banana because I find the chocolate covered banana to be delicious. 
<laughs> that's not a sexual euphemism. I know where you're going. Okay. It's my. I think it's my favorite. So go ahead. It's the part where he's talking to Sortilege, oh and she's God, like you, touching his this face. Is it, this is it. Oh, you're doing it. You're doing it. This and is my scene. And he's waving the postcard, and he's just like, I just feel like I have to help that guy. Oh. Like he just has this. Oh man. And you're like, is that what the movie's about? I don't know what I just saw. Me neither. In fact, I don't even want to know. And that, like those, that exchange, like that's that's the the manifesto for the entire film. I mean, that's like that's what the whole movie ultimately boils down to. But then we all make it about other stuff because we need it to be about that. And it is about greed and it is about all these things. But it's like I have found myself going into his movies being like, I can't wait for this to be about the textual subject matter that it never is <laughs> it never, and i and it's is. like at a certain point we have to stop asking it to be because i do think he finds these really interesting milieus and he soaks in them but then he uses them to tell i think ultimately very simple stories that i think almost always are just about like all you need is love because with any opening weekend you have the ads in your head and you know the trailers obviously yeah. are selling something different in this yeah. movie so it's you're like oh am i seeing lebowski am i seeing something that's a little more sure um, as opposed to this sort of meditation on, you know, time. Totally. And th- I mean, that's what I think is so exciting about this this movie is is this feeling of like you get lost in just enjoying it and mm-hmm. and in enjoying the moments and you lose your footing amidst like all of the other things that are happening. And and, you know, the the technical detective plot, <laughs> like the the place in history that they're at. And I think that in that sense, like it is it is. As much as this movie is sort of a fantasy and psychedelic in its its ways, like it is extremely historically accurate to what it was like to be alive in Los Angeles in 1970. Mm-hmm. You know, in this moment um, with Nixon, as we see in this scene, but also after the Manson murders, um, after Altamont, like this feeling of, of – and it's something, you know, Joan Didion used this phrase a few years previous to this, but this idea of like the center will not hold – it feels like it's an astrological detective story. <laughs> it, it's this dreamy, like, you know, she talks about everything being in a fog in, in this sort of state, but it's like the movie kind of just wafts through itself. Because then when I did interview Paul Thomas Anderson, and it was something I remember he's, I heard him say multiple times when he was promoting the movie was that he, for him, he had this feeling of giggle and give in, of just like, <laughs> sort of like, you're going to get a little lost. You're not going to totally get it. But, like, just give yourself over to it. In our last episode with guest Mark Olson of the L.A. Times, we covered a scene that I refer to as, well, if the scene of Doc and Shasta running in the rain to Neil Young is the heart of Inherent Vice, then last episode's focus, the scene in which Doc and Coy are sitting inside a house in the subculture infested with the dry rot of the golden fang while talking about the little kid blues, that is Inherent Vice's soul. As such, it was something of a milestone moment for this wacky show. It was a milestone for a couple other reasons as well. It was both Increment Vice's 20th episode. It's a nice round number. And it marked the moment in which we finally, finally, finally cracked the first hour of Inherent Vice. As such, we're going to celebrate a little bit today by featuring the return of Increment Vice's very first guest, as well as its producer, my good friend and internet husband, and the host of such podcasts as One Heat Minute, 
Oh, God, I missed one eight minutes. The last 12 minutes of the Mohicans, all the president's minutes, contingents, as well as about 495 new and upcoming shows, as this man literally never sleeps. He's got two kids and he does this. I have a dog and I'm barely hanging on to one show. <laughs> and it's especially thematically appropriate to have the man who hosted one heat minute back today for today's scene, which is just one minute long. See how it's thematic. It wraps itself up. Ladies and gents, live from Australia, the prince of podcasting, the Lord <laughs> Humongous, the warrior of the wasteland, the Ayatollah of rock and roll, Mr. Blake Howard. Uh, see, some people thank me about the introductions that are unfollowable, but I just want to bow out after that one. That's a cracker. That's really good. The Ayatollah <laughs> of rock and roller. That is so deeply Aussie of you, and I appreciate it. It's the deepest of all cuts. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I like, as I said, I like to butter up my guests and you, you, you came on 20 episodes ago, so I've already <laughs> buttered you up once. I had to, I had to come up with something different this time. And, and so, what, yeah. what people don't hear, which is my favorite part of the show is Travis talks to me in the uncut versions of this show, like I'm right next to him. And it's sometimes like it will leap out of the show. Like, oh, Blake, stop there. We're going to cut that bit or we're going to start that again. And so it's actually nice. I wish I'm. You know, I wish I actually timed them out where they were because I would have put it like a little homage of all of those times that you talk to me in the middle of an episode out there for people to listen to. But maybe we'll do that for the end. We'll save that for the very last. No, episode. like <laughs> no, no, don't don't ruin the illusion. Yeah, every 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 word that fires from my mouth is a pearl, is magic. I don't make mistakes. I don't have to cut and have any asides taken out. It's crazy talk. Can I just say though, uh, this has been a an amazing show to listen to. It's been such, uh, I knew when we talked about this show a long time ago and when I was basically prodding you into doing it, uh, that you were so perfect for it. And it's been a joy to listen on the other side of the world, uh, and, and listen along and see the response to the show as it's going along. And some, you know, it's, 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 it's a first hour, a milestone, you know, milestone territory. And, uh, and I don't know if we're going to do the entire, I think Jimmy Hempel is still the reigning champion of the longest running episode of this show. Jim Hempel. Uh, we, we took a couple of minutes out. <laughs> um, you know, it got really weird and, you know, we started cursing out, uh, uh you know, a lot of different people and not just, we, we took some time. We still, we cut, we trimmed a little bit for time. Because we can't talk about The Exorcist 2 for 30 minutes. Uh, <laughs> that said, I do believe, yeah, he went one minute longer. His episode is one minute longer, at least originally, than, the than all of Inherent Vice's running time. He went an hour longer than the goddamn movie. It is the only time, only time, and I'm not complaining because I, I would talk to Jim all day. He's, he's amazing and he's, he's wonderful to talk to. It was the only time where I was ready to tap out. Before every episode, I always tell the guests, hey, look, you know what? Let me know if you're running out of steam. Give me the sign, whatever. If, if, if you just hit the wall where it's like, I got nothing after this next bit that Travis is saying, like, I've got nothing left. Let me know and I'll just start winding up. That was the only time where I was just sitting in abject horror after two hours and like 40 minutes. I was like, I've got nothing left to say. I have nothing. And when he finishes what he's saying right now, I have absolutely nothing <laughs> but stones in my head. I am so tired. I'm so tired. And I, I, I love that because I assume that's what people must feel like when they talk to me on the day-to-day. 
But uh, yeah, I don't know if you're going to take. I don't know if anyone's going to take down Big Jim. No, that's good. I, I look. I I think we can we can give him the title. I'm I'm more than happy for him to hold it uh, for as long because you know you never know. I, I know some of the scenes that are coming up, so there might be some bangers in there, and you never know if we. We, and I know some of the guests that we've got coming up. So there's, um, yeah, there's definitely some fun stuff to fun stuff, uh, and fun people who may obsessively take you down some rabbit holes that I don't think you even imagined just yet. I'm looking forward to it. Also, I got to bring this up because, cause I'm an ass. I still take credit for the longest one heat minute episode. There's some, there's some cheaters in there where you've got like two guests. So it's like a three-hour episode. Yeah, single guest, single guest so record. God damn it. You, single guest record. Not even Michael hold. Mann beat me. Not even Michael Mann beat me. Yeah. If episode's longer, it's because it's, there's other people in that conversation. <laughs> yeah, look, the I think the second last episode, uh, which has four guests, uh, is longer than our 165. But uh, as a single minute to minute, that was um, that was a big one. It was a really special you know, episode. He, he actually remembers the episode number, 165. Oh, my God. People think I'm obsessive. You are like a machine. You're a machine. Uh, yes, I am obsessive, and particularly with heat and other things. This is my this is my modus operandi. This is why people listen to these kind of shows. Is because the way that you and I tend to express each uh, express ourselves when it comes uh, express ourselves when it comes to films is with a with breathing space. You know, it takes you <laughs> seemingly now at least like 5 to 10,000 words just to hiccup about what you want to talk about in a, in a in a film. So for me when it comes to podcasting, it's like I think that great cinematic art deserves that scrutiny and the the greatest deserves the minute by minute scrutiny or the scene by scene scrutiny. So I I I can obsess. Um and also that's how I hear it. That's what's even going to be weirder. And something that's going to be fun to talk to you after you do this project is watching this movie and talking to people about it and prepping for each of these shows, you are infected in a way with the guests that you talk to. And so what you find is like, you're going to have those portals like I have when I listen you know, and I see a scene, like I hear people talking to me and um, that may be, a, <laughs> may be a symptom of isolation, but it also could just be that, that, you know, doing that podcast and having those great conversations, they affected me. So now when I see it on the big screen or I ever watch it again, I haven't watched it in a very long time, actually. Um, uh, and one of the last times I did, I like I could hear people's voices. I could hear conversations. I could feel ra- going myself going down rabbit holes. I was chuckling at things people said to me in a podcast about a scene when it was happening. It was just, it's, yeah, it's one of those crazy things that is a byproduct of, uh, you know, I think I tallied at 115 hours of episodes of One Heat Minute. Well, that, that brings up something I actually wanted to talk to you about. Uh, you, you know, you are a, a captive audience member of Increment Vice yes. in that you have to listen to every single episode, even if you don't want to, because you produce and you edit this thing. <laughs> and uh, you say that you haven't watched it as a whole in a while, which again, how dare you, Jesus. No, I meant, uh, I meant hate. I meant hate. I've watched Inherent Vice more in the last six months than I have hate. That's for sure. Oh, bless your heart. Well, then I'm curious. Uh, listening to this show, as you have, I, has it, and hearing all the different guests and the different people and the different perspectives, uh, has it reinforced how you felt about the film? Has it changed how you felt about the film? Has it brought up new things? Have you noticed new things in the film? Other than the fact that you hate how much I bring up uh, Bigfoot Bjornsson's <laughs> fallen partner, Vincent Indelicato. He hates 
He hates everyone I listening. I, I, he hates I, I, that I, I bring up Vincent and Delicato so much, but it's important. People have to be reminded. <laughs> no, I don't hate it. I just said to Trav, <laughs> we need to stop talking about a character who's not on the screen and start focusing on the characters. Right. No, um, what it has made me appreciate so much more is the language of the movie and that's twofold it's the it's how it's the compromises that pta makes uh in structuring the movie the way that he does um to sort of have his cake and eat it too to make it more cinematic but then also to find ways like in the very scene that we're talking about to inject pinchin-esque flurries into it so one of the things that i've been doing in the show a lot is as you and your different pinch and head guests talk about it like the way that characters are described or certain flurries of language and things like that i go back to the book and i go and find the bits and i will just like read how he phrases the language and so that's one huge thing and then from a cinematic language perspective um the mariah gates episode that you guys talked about music and playlists the the music of this film has been completely I don't know, like exhumed and examined and, and, and so it's such a part of how we do the show, but it's also such a part of how I've like learned to reappreciate it because that's what one thing I, 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 I'm not the biggest music expert. Like I can't rally off on an out. Like I love music and I listen to it relentlessly when I ride and when I work. Um, but I'm not, uh, I, I don't have that savant quality with music of like, Oh, that album from this year and this artist and this writer. And so it's been really cool. Like unpacking, um, how PTA re uh, his different chronology of how things are released, you know, the Neil Young stuff, which is released a couple of years later, but he puts it in this movie and sort of that's a weird timeline. And so I've been really like diving into that. But when you said like, did I love it? Do I love it more? No, but I, uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. It's like, do you love your kids more every day? You know, like <laughs> you, you lo- the love seems boundless. You know, you, you think your heart's too full, but it's never too full. And I think that what's cool is just finding, you know, this whole commune of like, you know, stoners, uh, st- you know, stoner, uh, 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 cop aficionados and, and, uh, and, you know, with all their stoner ESP talk about this movie, I just love it. And so I, I've, I've had such a ball going along and it's, what actually I think is better about this movie is it's just funnier. Like some movies aren't funny when they're happening. They're funnier in the retelling. Like if you try and do any line, if you try and do any like Bigfoot line from this movie with a straight face, when you're like telling someone what the line is, it's impossible. It's just absolutely impossible. Like every single thing that comes out of his face in the whole movie is like a laugh out loud line. So no CLO drive for Bigfoot. <laughs> so- <laughs> dark it's really dark but it's fun <laughs> it's really fun too well what i've loved about this just for on my end is like you know i'm clearly i'm someone who is damaged in that in how much i have poured and poured and poured <laughs> over this film before there was i was even writing about it before this this show existed before you and i were talking about it just obsessively had to keep coming back to it. Um, you know, we, uh, not to turn this into like a clip show, uh, which would be, which we should have done. We should have just been lazy and made a clip show, like, you know, like an eighties <laughs> like show or something, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's come to this, a Simpsons clip show. Um, yeah, but there was, you know, there's a great bit in, in bad way back in the second episode with, uh, the amazing Kim Morgan. Mm. And we were both, and this is something that she and I have talked about off air as well. Um, 
that we don't know why we keep coming back to it. We just know that it keeps calling us to come back to it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, we know that it makes us happy. We know that it makes us sad. We know we like the music. We know we like Doc. But, like, you know, there's a million movies that are like that for me. There's a million, trust me, there's a million cop movies and detective movies and neo noir movies and hazy, lazy, uh, SoCal, uh, uh, hard boiled films that I, I could watch a million times over. But, the, you know, she and I were both talking about how there's something about this and we don't quite know what it is. But there's something about this that just keeps whispering to you that just come back, come, come hang out, come, come watch me again. And I, I'm, I'm someone who's been afflicted with that since the moment I saw it. And so what has been interesting is to keep rewatching that film, but through new sets of eyes, as you were saying, you know, yeah. with new sets of what you call the portals, new sets of eyes with, with each episode um, and despite having poured over this film a, a cabillion times before, uh, you're, you, through the, through that, you, through that, those lenses, you, you see things that you never would have seen before that because you, you're, you're built with all these different prejudices and privileges and other P words that I can't throw in to make that sentence more alliterative by which I, I wish I would have thought of one, but you, you, you have these sets of blinders on that both allow you to see things that other people can't see but then blind you to the things that they can bring to the table. And what's one of the things that's so cool about this show and your shows and shows like this is that it allows, ultimately, it kind of democratizes the film a little bit in that it allows you to see what other people can see, but you cannot. And it, it broadens your appreciation and it broadens the, the very scope of what the film can contain. And one of those things that just never occurred to me before I, I guess brought it up and I'm, I'm pretty sure it started with Alicia Malone's episode, which is like episode 11, like the first episode of 2020. Um, and it's the episode in which Doc's POV comes into question as, re, as it re, pertains to uh, Shasta Faye and, and not in an unreliable narrator kind of way, because we've already got one of those in this movie. Uh, <laughs> discussed in your episode, episode number one, but his point of view in terms of how he views Shasta in specific. And I used to think that Vice was maybe the one Paul Thomas Anderson film that didn't really dissect or grapple with masculinity in any kind of real concrete way. And yet now I've come to wonder, as many of my guests have started to bring this up, that if the way that doc portrays or views Shasta is inaccurate and maybe even somewhat damaged, uh, and maybe it was my own immaturity, but for a long time, I saw doc's intentions towards Shasta as, uh, hundred percent noble and sweet. He's like a PTA calls him like a loyal dog at one point, <laughs> but, but now it's, it's not so much that they're not, no, it, they don't seem as noble, but it's more that, I don't know now that she is a woman who is ever in need of being saved. I don't know that she's a woman in need of being saving. And I wonder if that's what so much of her mysteriousness and in that very complicated sex scene is all about that in keeping with so much of what Pynchon's book was about, uh, tearing open the scab of sixties nostalgia and finding it, you know, full of all this, 
pus of corruption and broken promises and dead Kennedys. Just like that, Doc fondly looks back on his time with Shasta. And it's not that there wasn't, you know, goodness there, but it's almost like he's trying to remember a woman that never was. That was not how she was, and that was not who she was. And maybe things were a little bit more sunshiny in his memory than were actually really happening in the real world. And can I play? He, can I play revisionist with one of your favorite lines that you love to say on this show? What's that? Well, it's about love, baby. It's like it's <laughs> it's one thing that you say quite a bit, but I would say to you that you know, and to speak non-specifically but about personal experiences there are times where you've been to an ex or been with an ex and the person that you're being with in that moment is not that person and the person that they're being with is also not that person it is an idealized memory it is like a polaroid photograph like and i think that that's what it's a sunny sepia dream and that's what the neil young song is and so i think that there's a great question about is this Shasta that is finally in need of saving and in need of his expertise, the thing that was missing because they both need some weed and she needed companionship before, like in that sort of what, in what we've been able to see in the heart of the film so far. But it's, it's just one of those things that I look at now and I hear you talking about it and I think, you know, there have been times where you've hooked up with an ex or something like that, and it's amazing. It's outlandish. And then, like, minutes later, you're like, that was a real mistake. <laughs> that was the worst possible thing that could have happened because it's not real. Like, it's just a fever dream. And so, yeah, I, I think... Don't, that, this don't mean we're back together. <laughs> this don't mean we're back together. Is indeed, right? Like, I think that that is what is so great. And actually, you just triggered me to the point is that my prejudice coming into this movie may have been a, a, an unabiding love for Walk the Line, James Mangold. So I've always seen Shasta as that problem. My, my oh, own stuff. Oh, you want him to run off with Penny Kimball. I'm like, Penny's, 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 the, Penny's, the, Penny's the stability. Like the romance is you're going to do it, but I've always, there's always been this air of doom for me around Shasta and it, you know, well, is, yeah. and that, and that's, and so when it comes to like Doc's ongoing <laughs> stability and relationships, I'm like, Penny's smart. Penny's the smart one to go with, but you're never going to do the smart thing. He has to make the mistake. That's the whole, that's the whole allure. But yeah, like, I think well, that's, 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 it's bad love. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but I do, yeah, I do think though that there is a weird bit of kind of tortured masculinity as it pertains to Doc and, Again, I think I think a big part of reconciling Shasta's storyline in a way to make it make sense, because it's always a weird part of the movie to wrestle with. Like, yes, we get that it's all about love. We get that this is a love movie. It is. Yes. Uh, but there's a ghostliness and a diffuseness to her storyline that's a little hard to get your arms around. And I think it's embodied by that sex scene, which is, my God, if there's one repeated line from every guest, either off air or on it's boy, I don't envy the guests coming on <laughs> that episode, having to dissect what the fuck that is supposed to be. And the more, and I don't want to jump ahead too far to it, but the more that we talk to guests and the more that this thread has come up of that, maybe doc, something he's a bad guy by any means he's a hero, but maybe he can't recognize that Shasta doesn't need him. And that was the problem all along is that 
he feels like he's got to be the man and save her and that maybe what he doesn't recognize is, you know, like she says in that scene, you know, you know, what kind of girl are you looking for, Doc? Do you really want one of those Manson chicks? Because maybe she's kind of saying, look, I'm okay with that. I was that for Mickey Wolfman, and that's what I wanted. And that maybe Doc's problem is that he can't recognize and reconcile that Shasta is not the carefree hippie chick that he thought that she was, that maybe that there's something more complicated there. And so because he can't see that, he has to assume he's got to save her. You just nailed it, which is she goes, what do you want, Doc? It stops being about who she is. And it's, it's actually just this turbulent cauldron of his darkest desires and mm. his proclivities that maybe aren't the nicest or like, you know, that, that lack of dominance or the lack of power that he's been able to exhibit in, in that relationship and the lack of control, like this whole thing that she starts is like a tornado that he has to wrangle and then pulling it mm-hmm. back down until she just waltzes back in the door. Like everything's completely okay. And they have this amazing scene um, and, and amazing because of the, the turbulence uh, more so than the actual you know, events, so to speak. Um, and yeah, I think that, it, I think I, I know who the guest is coming up on that episode. Um, unlike folks who are listening. So I'm just thrilled that, you know, that, that people are going to hear you unpack it with that guest. But I, I, I think it's that, I think it's in that moment, she's saying, what do you want? And he lives the darkness his actions are the darkness of, and, and why he's doing that is another great question. Like that's just the turmoil. It's like, why, why is this and guy who's, that, who's so sunny and so bright and so breezy? Why in this moment is that, is there this ferocity that is there really only touched on later in the film in the same way when it's like a fight or flight instinct, whether he's going to die. Yep. Yeah. And what's interesting is there was a little bit more of that in the actual script. Especially, funnily enough, for this very scene that we're going to talk about today, Mm. in the script, there's a um, there's a beat where between when they leave the Topanga house after Coy has made that somewhat startling reveal that it was Shasta Fay that pulled him into the Golden Fang, and Doc does that kind of weird full body like uh, dry heave, almost like a grand mile, some sort of like he's he's really freaked out by. There's a, it, it cuts to a bit of business where he's driving uh, Jade home and Jade and Dennis are sitting in the back seat and Doc is very paranoid that someone's following them. You see clips of this in some of the trailers as well as the deleted scenes package on the Blu-ray. But what was left out entirely is a monologue from Sordelige during that sequence when they're driving away in which she says, as if things weren't peculiar enough, Doc was managing to put himself on a full-scale paranoid trip about Shasta and how much she must have been using all the time she and Doc were together, maybe since before they'd met, a devoted junkie taking every chance she could to slip out into the fine breezy nights and go someplace they'd been looking for, they'd been looking after her outfit for her so she wouldn't have to hide it at home from Doc. Just to be back for a while among the junkie fellowship to have a break from this hopeless stooge she was already planning to split on and so forth. And that was left out of the film, obviously. It's, it's a bit from the book and it was it was included in the script. 
And I thought that that was what a remarkable window into Doc's psychology that is, because in a way it humanizes him. I mean, we already know he's human, but it makes him more complicated than he, he seems, I think, somewhat in that the second, the second coy implies that it was Shasta that introduced him to the Fang. He goes down this wild road of, oh my God, she was a junkie herself. And anytime I didn't see her, anytime she left the bungalow is because she was going to score with her old outfit and her old junkie pals, which makes that unique line near the beginning of the film. It was actually in Alicia's minute when Sword of Liege is talking about how uh, Doc was the only friend of Shasta's who didn't do heroin, which freed up a lot of time for them both. Yes. And, but this scene, it's, it's interesting how Doc makes that very dark kind of aggro bro leap into, <laughs> uh, into these insecurities about, well, well, if she introduced him to the thing, what else was she doing? Was she doing the, was she on junk too? Did she introduce him to junk? Is that how he got hooked? And just, I think that there's a, there's a level of complication and dark darkness to Doc that kind of hums like a flick guitar string just under the surface of this movie and the, you know, and there's you know not what, a lot you know what those there. flick guitar strings sound like they sound like twangs on those string instruments in the score of the master to me like that when you were just speaking I'm like and people who are just listening are going to hear the master score under that <laughs> that that crazy um that that you know you're not only you follow the dialogue, down 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 it's like Yes, there's this percussive impulse that you're going to dive down the rabbit hole of darkness, and when everything is uncertain, that's when you get your most insecure, and the anxiety just peaks, and you can feel your stomach going in knots, and you know it feels like the impulse of our age right now, right, because of everything that's happening. But I think that in that moment, that's where it's it's really two kinds of it's two kinds of reception. It's it's are you the kind of person that needs to be told that he's insecure? And that there's darkness there, or you're going to be shown it and have it conveyed to you. And I think, I think there there is darkness there in Doc. I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's as simple. I think that there's so like to have an actor with the boundless capability of Joaquin Phoenix playing you, it's not always going to be sunshine and rainbows. Like he's he's. Uh, I, I think you've used it a couple of times in other essays, but it's like that funereal quality of him. Like he's he's a guy yeah. that like when he puts on the black suit, you know, you look like you're going to a funeral. Like maybe I am. Like that's him. Like that's his whole <laughs> that's his whole entity, right? And so I feel like this son, you know, that's why this movie was never going to be quite the Big Lebowski because then you've got Jeff Bridges playing Stoner Jeff Bridges. Like Jeff Bridges is a big teddy yeah. bear, um, uh, and and so. The difference is with Joaquin is that it's there's a lot more of that internal turmoil that he can reflect through, and and um, when he's not being Bugs Bunny and getting you know <laughs> bashed around by by um, you know our our very own Porky Pig in this story with a with a flat top, um, Bigfoot Bjornsson, it's like it's it's one of those things that um, he he can bring so much to to that moment to that to that side of himself, and yeah, it's and. And even in the way that when he's talking to Japonica's dad at the end of the movie, which is just an outstanding scene, so I won't ruin it for the people who are going to talk about it, but um, there's a fortitude that he finds, there's a steel that he finds, like faced with literally an avatar of the devil, that he's yeah. like, he can be strong. So I think that the darkness and the strength... Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. See, that's it, right? Yeah, you know, and we know how much you love movies where guys go, 
You know, like that's the, like, <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, I've started, I just, just as a complete tangent, cause that's what happens in these shows. Um, I haven't, uh, I have a dog. She's a, like 11 or 12, um, nearly 12. Um, her name's Lainey. She's a Labrador. She's very cute. And, uh, I usually feed her by like clicking my fingers when she, um, when she gets her food, she sits for it and she waits like a good Did girl. you start doing the. I've started to try and get my daughter to do it. I did it too. I've started started to get my daughter to do it because I want to take a video for you of my daughter going (laughs) like that and then the dog getting the food. Um, Oh, my God. There's a certain level of, speaking of uh, toxic masculinity, a certain level of immaturity that makes you feel super cool when you you make your dog do something to... Just because Brad Pitt did it in one fun time in Hollywood. But my God, I felt like the coolest guy in the world when Kobe responded uh, when I started doing that. Coolest that's feeling not, in the world. That's not toxic. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> I, I, I think, I, I think that, I think that finding the new layers to the character, like, and you know, not to talk about heat, um, again and always, but I think that that's a very, you know, that's something that I've contended with almost every person that's ever talked about Al Pacino in Heat, and there's always this view of like he's just this blowhard in the movie he's just rolling in he's you know and and uh he's coming in and just like screaming in every scene and it's just completely ott and like the thing that i've always had to contend with people with is like no there is a there is a rich and complex individual here who's wrestling with a whole bunch of internal turmoil and it's like when you find those scenes they're lightning rods and i think that that's what what you're about to see in the scene that's coming up um in that sex scene with Doc is that like, there are some lightning rod scenes here where you see him dig into different parts of himself, where it's not just the silly stone of paranoia, where it's ferocity, where it's fight or flight, whether it's standing up to the devil, um, whether it's, you know, living out a dark fantasy. I think that that, that like he's everything because he's, he's a complex whole character. And I think that that's, um, that's what's so exciting about this movie that you, you know, if, unless you and I just rang each other every day and talked about it, um, we probably wouldn't have gotten there. <laughs> Which is again, but again, what's amazing is that I never saw it. I did not see that. Yeah. I didn't see that thread. I didn't see that. I mean, I got, I, I saw the, okay, there's some, there's obviously some darkness in these two characters because of the sex scene, but that whole thread about, uh, about maybe the, you know, and maybe that's indeed one of the reasons why Shasta had to leave is because there was, that she, you can feel when someone isn't seeing who you are, but who they want you to be. And how frustrating that can be mm. when you, you just want to, you, you want to yell at them. That's not who I am. I'm, I'm one of these Manson chicks. Leave me alone. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not the country Joe and the fish t-shirt and bottom half of a flower print bikini gal. That's not, that's not, that does not sum me up. And I wonder if maybe perhaps, cause I, I definitely get the feeling that doc does not know why Shasta left, but I think Shasta has a very concrete reason and knows why she left. Yeah. And it's just, that's something that, I never picked up on that guitar hum. I never heard it until people started bringing it up. And again, I think the first was, I think the first time that came up was with Alicia, but it, it, it's something that's kind of grown and become more and more of a, uh, of a talking point with each subsequent episode. And with every rewatch now, it's more and more difficult for me to not see in his, in his characterization. And it's also unlocked that scene, which I was nervous about. Everyone says, Oh boy, I, I don't envy your guests. It's doing that sex scene episode. I didn't envy myself. I didn't know how I was going to talk <laughs> about that. scene, But I feel like starting to see doc like this and go on that journey. And we're, we're boy, we're just so far afield from where we started, but, uh, which is something you got to say in every episode. Uh, 
But, but, this is kind of a recap episode. We've got to do our greatest hits here. Um, in walking down that path, in being willing to see Doc, he's still a hero, but being willing to see him as valuable, be, being willing to see him as flawed, beyond just being like, you know, a goofball, but see him as actually a deeply complicated man who has real problems like the rest of these characters. It does, it, it's like a skeleton key that starts unlocking all of these other bits of business in the film that, you kind of just take because they're in the film and, but they don't stand up to your scrutiny. You can't quite figure out why they're there. And then something like viewing doc like this takes an incredibly difficult scene like that sex scene. And suddenly and maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, but it does unlock it for me and it allows me to understand it finally and really truly grasp it. And I was only able to do that because I did this, this goddamn show, this silly show and spoke to people who made me see that that thing that I just could not see with my own eyes. And that, this is a very long digression to basically <laughs> say, hey, you know what? It's cool when we all talk about the same thing because you get other perspectives. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great bit in The Nice Guys, which I, I, I rewatched just last night, which is a film that has a lot of I'm glad you're uh, uh, symmetries. <laughs> I did have a lot to drink when I was watching it, too. Um, it's a film that has a lot of symmetries and similarities to this one, and I think they'd make a fine double feature, actually. Uh, New Beverly, if you ever open, you're listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, um, oh my God, I just, I, I did the, I did the incremental vice thing, right? I totally lost my thread, but it's, it's, oh my God, it's how embarrassing. And I'm not going to tell you to cut it. I'm going to let you leave it in, Blake. I'm going to let you leave it in. <laughs> I'm, but just writing, I was watching... I'm writing down the time and writing paranoia alert on my notepad right now. <laughs> yeah. Cause you know, in the middle of the night, I'm going to text you, you know what? You got to take that out. I, I sound like a fucking fool. Take it out, Blake. I'm leaving it in. I'm leaving it in. Uh, so anyway, but there's that great bit at the end of uh, of, of the Nice Guys where where uh, uh, Russell Crowe goes on this this long story about about Nixon finding a guy, and and, and after like ten minutes of that, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Ryan Gosling is like, yeah, just say it's it's two different people, two different two different ways of looking at something. And that's all you got to say. And I feel like we spent 30 minutes basically going, yeah, isn't it cool when multiple people talk about a movie and you learn different things about how they see it? That's it. That's, it. that's what I love about this show. I love that they allow me to see something I love in different ways. There you go. You can delete that whole last 40 minutes. So just, just checking, 36 minutes, just kill it. We'll just start again from here. Yeah, yeah, why not? Why not? Why not? Good, good to hear. Actually, no. We're all on quarantine time now. We need we we got to fill time. Everyone everyone's going out of their goddamn minds, and they're looking to us, Blake. They're looking to you and I. They're looking to you and I to hear our jib jab and our sweet dancer. <laughs> so now we'll leave, we'll leave it all. In. We'll leave it all in. But going back really quickly to something you said about because it all does go back, doesn't it? To heat when you're talking about uh, Vincent Hannah, not in Delicado, and. You mentioned how you know a lot of people kind of misunderstand his character, and that he's not just this big blowhard. He's actually this very kind of quiet, intelligent man who is modulizing and weaponizing uh, his delivery of information to people so that he can get more out of them. And one of my favorite bits of character breakdown was when Drew McQueenie came on and he did the Jade introduction episode when we, when we first come to Chick Planet. Yes. And he talked about how she, Hong Chow, plays this woman like a heavyweight boxer who is just <laughs> landing body blow after body blow uh, against 
poor Doc uh, Sportello who has no idea that he's even in a boxing match. But like everything that she says is he thinks is like a you know sultry come on and you know oh see here procedure special. But what you know what she's slyly doing as well. We have a police discount. Are you a cop? <laughs> and you know slyly information out of him modulating what he is perceiving as, oh, just a, you know, a floozy hippie. But instead, she's slowly pulling information out of him before totally neutralizing him and just sending him on his purple shag carpeted way to get knocked out by bats unknown. And I think that she is such an unsung part of this film, not because she's not popular. I think everyone that walks away from Inherent Vice goes, oh, God, who was that? That was, oh, God, that was amazing. She's good. Uh, he, but now I think more people know who she is. But at the time, everyone's like, well, who the fuck was that? There's a great, thing about, I, I, there's a great thing about Hong Chow. I just want to tack into the, what Drew's description of like her as a heavyweight champion. Her description of herself, she's like, I've always seen, uh, and it was in a couple of interviews, she talked about herself being like a mysterious fairy and uh, that sort of helps Doc along the way. But another word that she used was genie. And I think she's like, and, you know, to quote Aladdin, which is another one of my favorites, the animated version, that is not the Will Smith version, for God's sake, uh, is I think she's, I literally think she has a phenomenal cosmic power. Like she is, there is something about her, not only in this movie, but particularly in her performances in like Downsizing, which is a you know, much, much derided movie for no reason, really. She's terrific in it. Um, and particularly something like Watchmen um, where she's just like, she's vibrating on a different frequency to other people. Like there's something like, there's almost like a glow where you can see her aura in every single scene. And I think that that's what's so amazing about her in this scene. And we'll get to beat for beat why that so works is because when Doc is talking to her, she's she identifies him and that's her sly. That's like her disguise. Like I'm just right now I'm pretending to be this thing that you have no clue what it is and I can make you spin around and spin like a top and dance and do whatever you want, uh, do whatever I want to get the information out. But then when she decides that for whatever reason, this shaggy sort of puppy dog, you know, stoned PI, you know, she decides to help him. He asks her questions and almost instantaneously she can deliver these supreme power shots of like, this is the information that you need. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, another podcast that's coming up on one heat minute productions, Miami nice. Like I was so shocked that both of them feature explanations of vertical integration um, and not in a bad <laughs> way uh, when it comes to business and or drug operations. And like, she just like, she's so dialed into the universe that when he asks her a question and she gives him information, it's like, it's that. It's so prophetic. It's perfect. And so I, I think she's just, I mean, you know, if, she, if she's a heavyweight boxer, you know, uh, if she's a heavyweight, it's like that scene from Monty Python where there's like a heavyweight champion and a little girl fighting in the ring. <laughs> yeah. Like that's what Doc is. Doc's a little girl. Boom, yeah. boom. And she's just like eviscerating everyone. She's outstanding. I just want to say what a public service that we are providing. And that I think by the end of the day, when all of these podcasts are out, our audience is going to have a much better understanding of how to vertically integrate their heroin <laughs> trade into the state. And you're welcome, America, because who knows what the economy is going to be like by the end of this year. Hey, we're just giving tips. We're just giving points. We farm. We process. <laughs> oh, boy. Now I want to talk about I, Miami Vice. Our, On that our, note, our audience is going to go, I know what it means. <laughs> 
on that note, okay, with that in mind, let's float into the scene here and we'll come back in a minute. Beware of the golden thing. Why am I supposed to beware of a boat? They're an Indo-Chinese heroin cartel. A vertical package. They grow it, bring it in, step on it, run stateside networks of local street dealers and take a separate percentage off of each operation. So you're dealing smack? Oh, but they use Chick Planet as a front to launder money. See you around. Reluctant, maybe even a little desperate, Doc figured he had to go visit Bigfoot now. On principle, he tried to spend as little time around the glass house as possible. First things last, since it's the last thing we were talking about, JJJJJJJJ, Hong Chow once again showing up to be essentially a plot device. She should not work. This character should not work as she is portrayed in the film. She has a bit more to do in the book. But in the film, and it's kind of surprising that, I'm a little surprised that PTA would take this approach, and I don't know if part of it is like, well, it's a film noir. There's got to be this big sleep character that kind of comes out of the ether to connect the dots for our beleaguered audience and explain what's going on. It's it, it, Maybe he was thinking that. I don't know, but it is surprising that on the on the page, she's funny. She's, she's always funny. But the page, she's essentially, she's, she's Johnny Exposition. You know, she's <laughs> just there. She's just there to explain what the hell's going on when we first meet the planet and then once again at Club Asiatique and then once again at the house in Topanga. And hell, even her goddamn notes are full of exposition. Uh, she essentially exists to goose the plot forward with info, though never quite as blatantly and completely as she did just now in this scene. And yet Hong Chao's performance is so perfect. Yes. And so enjoyable that you never once think, oh God, here comes here comes the exposition. What's amazing about her performance is she plays Jade the way Jade works all the other characters in the movie in that the way Doc never realizes that when he, when he strolls into club Asiatique that day with that smarmy little look on his face, thinking he's going to talk circles around, around this, uh, this uh, pro at the, at the desk, she braces him, not the other way around. She gets everything she needs out of him. And then she just rolls on out. Same here. We're loving Jade. We're like, oh, she's so funny. She's so charming. Never once realizing, oh, she's got us wrapped around our, our, her little finger, and she's just laying out exposition after expositional beat to us and then just getting the fuck out. And that is exactly that is exactly what her character does. And she, she plays the audience like a fiddle. And I, it is, I should resent it. I shouldn't like it, but I love it. And I, I, I appreciate it. She so does so much with what is so potentially little on the page. It's incredible to watch. And in a minute scene, she kind of opens up a globalist conspiracy theory because I think that that's what's so <laughs> cool about so many noirs is, and you know, like you look at the, you look at the sort of the very best examples, you know, like the Chinatowns, et cetera. You see that there is a, 
there's an interconnectedness of a city. There's the interconnectedness of politics and, you know, socioeconomic manipulations to keep, you know, powerful people able to do criminal things underhandedly because people are just sort of sharing power and, you know, you know, eating scraps off the table, so to speak, to, you know, wet their beak a little. But I love... I love that in this movie that is about the seventies because it feels like a very postmodern thing and something like, and not to talk too much about my advice, but like the postmodernity of international criminal conspiracies that are happening, that things are running in this country and that country in this, this has been a really tight LA story, even a SoCal story for the longest time. And, and then weird things that even though sh- ships are going offshore and uh, floating out in the sea, et cetera, it's all about, um, getting into international waters and things like that. It's just up and down the coast, very much SoCal based. But in this moment, it just sort of explodes into an international, like global conspiracy about vertical integration and and t- tying in the interdependencies of this particular cartel um, with what we later know, and it's just so pinching to do so, like what we later know with the CIA, like running... <laughs> you know, running drugs in and out of Vietnam during the war. And that's how they were making their money and then putting crack on the streets of like Harlem and things like that. Um, it's just one of those things that it just sort of explodes and expands and, and you go, oh, that this is kind of limitless. And Doc is only you know, sort of grasping onto the very edge of it. And I, I like moments like that where you know that it's part of something so much bigger and so much uh, harder to grapple with, uh, but that doesn't, stop the momentum it just makes this behemoth big and you just know that it's even more important for doc to do his little bit because i think that that's one thing i've appreciated in the show is you talking about that one good thing it's like how can i how can i even possibly eat this elephant it's like one bite at a time and that's that that's this moment and talking of her performance about to exhibit it's like doc asks a question she wants to tell him but i love the look of daggers that she flicks at dinas really quickly like look at this dead shit in the back right like she's just she doesn't care and she looks at him she's like i don't know if i want to like try and drop a a a truth bomb um so loudly in this scene with this dope in the back um and i i I love that like little dagger that she shoots over at dinas uh for a quick second it's just great well it's just so incredible to me that you know okay they're an Indo- Indo-Chinese heroin cartel, a vertical package. They grow it, they bring it bring it in, step on it, run it stateside to net- networks of local street dealers, and they take a separate percentage off of the top of each operation. With, with that one very concise sentence, far more concise than anything you and I have done today <laughs> on this show, she basically, yeah, she does, she takes this, and it, it never really, I never really even thought about how big that is, that she takes this, very kind of hazy, lazy, SoCal, soft-boiled noir that right now is kind of humming along in its own wavelength somewhere between, you know, like the, uh, let's say The Late Show and uh, The Long Goodbye or maybe Night Moves. And, but it's all still rather kind of small. It's yes. all still small. It's like we're just dealing with, with local junkies and a wacky cop. And hell, we haven't even really seen Los Angeles proper at any given point yet in this film. Not any in any kind of significant way. We've seen the beach, which is great. It's great. It's a great part of living out here. <laughs> That's about it. It's about it. It's about it. But in this one moment, the entire in way in a moment that is kind of a take a timeout movie. Like let's all <laughs> audience, let's just kind of hang back for a minute. That while we're all hanging back, 
just relaxing and taking a breath, the movie explodes its scope out as literally far as the scope can go and not leave planet Earth. It, it, it suddenly turns this thing about, well, what is this thing? Golden Fang? Is it a boat? Is it a band? Into <laughs> the source of all wrongness on Earth. Yes. And and I love how... Global criminal film, conspiracy. <laughs> There's nothing in bigger. In a film, it's... <laughs> you're like Tom Cruise in Vanilla Sky. There's nothing bigger, is there? <laughs> I love how in a film that's already pretty convoluted at this point, uh, and, and one that a lot of people complain about being you know too complex, that the, the movie does, doesn't get a lot of credit for this. It takes a breather right at the end of this first hour to be like, okay, look, audience, Here's what's going on. <laughs> and, and yeah, she, you know, she does that conspiratorial look over her shoulder. Like, all right, you listen. All right. You, okay. Okay. Audience. You know, how the CIA ran heroin out of Indochina during Vietnam. And even before that, the, the CIA literally had something called the golden triangle, this area where the borders of Thailand, Laos and Myanmar, uh, they all met. And from 61 to kinda, 75. Ca- triangle kind of looks like a golden fang. Yep. Go on. <laughs> I was going to say the CIA infamous, infamously ran this secret war out of Laos from which they exported pure heroin. And well, okay, here we go. And this, we got a movie called Inherent Vice. And instead of a golden triangle, we have a golden fang. And there you go. Those are the bad guys. They've permeated every facet of American society in order to sustain themselves. Boom. There we go. Movie, get back to it. And what, in what is such a, what feels like a laid back scene that is the most, maybe one of the most audacious things that Paul Thomas <laughs> Anderson does in his entire goddamn oeuvre is go, oh, you, oh, you remember how you thought this was going to be like a breakup detective movie? Well, by the way, these people have just taken over the whole planet. <laughs> and, now, and our hero is going to go up against him. Okay, movie, restart. And Kick also, off now. And also, Hong Chao says that her favorite description of the character from Pynchon, because Pynchon does great descriptions of all these characters, but imagine the audacity to disseminate that time bomb of information or that like explosion from what Pynchon calls... A small, perfect Asian dewdrop. She's just a sweetie <laughs> pie, and she just drops that bomb right there in the middle of the movie. Okay, cool. Globalist, uh, global uh, criminal conspiracy. See ya. Walks up her steps. That's it. Well, in a line that was cut from the script, I don't know if you've read a lot of PTA scripts, but he'll have these little notes. Like he'll put like alternate, and oh. he'll have like a whole alternate. Like, hey, we could maybe end it with this instead of that. Like, we'll decide on the day, whatever. And there was an alternate ending to this sequence in which, Can I you just know, say, it, just it, to it, interrupt you for a second, I love that Travis as PTA, like, it's getting so much better. Like, this many episodes <laughs> into the series, your PTA is so good. Like, if you guests have complimented you, it's just getting better and better. So by the end, it's going to be out of, out well, of control. It's going to be really, well... There's a there's a future guest. This episode's already been recorded. Who actually was kind of taken aback by the impression. I'm thinking that if we got for no other reason, we will get PTA on the show, and I'll do the episode in his voice, and he'll be talking to me, and we'll have like two PTAs, just like Doc and and Bigfoot are kind of doppelgangers, just like Coy, you know, Rick Doppel. Uh, yeah, I think that's going to be a, he'll, he'll walk away immediately. He but will walk that away would be immediately. a really fun, that'd be a real fun five minutes before he catches <laughs> on what I'm doing is I'm smacking my gum going, I don't know, man, I'm just trying to make a movie. <laughs> uh, but back to what you're saying about, about, uh, Pynchon's great, great description of Jade is 
there was an alternate ending to this scene. And God, you know, maybe I, I love the movie too much because every time I see an alternate cut, every time I see a deleted scene, every time I read a deleted scene, I'm like, oh, this should have been in there. This would have been perfect. It's so great. As if the movie isn't perfect already, which it is. There's a great bit where she's turning to leave Doc and Dennis, go up the steps to her apartment, and she stops and she says in this great film noir line, just be advised, boys, you'll want to watch your step. Because what I am is, is like a small diameter pearl of the Orient rolling around on the floor of late capitalism. Low lice of all income levels may step on me now and then, but if they do, it'll be them who slips and falls and on a good day break their ass while this old pearl herself just keeps a rolling. Thanks for the lift. And just walks off. <laughs> it's a good line. It's probably a little much. It's, it's, a, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit much. It's a bit on the nose. But this is already a movie that has a doppelganger character named Rick Doppel. Uh, <laughs> it's a little on the nose, but I love I, I, I love that very brassy, broad, see you, fellas, uh, kind of uh, <laughs> film, film I think, I, uh, I think, air. That I feel it. like if she just went, see you, fellas, and walked up the stairs, it might be perfect. Like, it might be ad, <laughs> added perfection. But, yeah, I, I, she doesn't need to say anything because – that that's part of her allure as well as like she just is plugged in, like she's plugged well, yeah, into and, and the secrets of the universe. She's plugged in. She is, and you know, I, I think I, I believe it was also Drew in Drew's episode who's a big, big Jade fan. No one knows more about what's going on in this movie than Jade. Jade's the only one that <laughs> she's got it all figured out. Yeah, she knows everything. She knows the ins and outs. I guarantee you, if it. Poor Doc, it never occurs to him. He should just say, hey, do you know where Shasta's at, by the way? Like, do you know where the, the boat's at? Can you, like, just give me latitude, longitude so I can just, like, figure this out? Like, she probably knows. She knows what's going on with Wolfman. She knows what's going on with the thing. She knows what the existence of Chick Planet is. She knows where she knows where Koi is at at any given moment, apparently. Like, she she's a way better Jiminy Cricket than Sword Leash. She, she knows the answer to every single question. And what I also love about her and why I like that line is because that's Jade. You never have to worry about her character. No matter what happens, no matter what happens to Doc, Shasta, Sorleach, Bigfoot, Koi, Jade's going to survive all of this, and she's oh, going to be just fine. Yeah, she's going to be just fine. Yeah, there's no problem with Jade. You, there's not even a split second that you're not like, oh, Jade, Jade might be in trouble. She shouldn't have told him that information. In so many noirs, it's like, God, when people, like, when people give you something, you're worried about their safety. You're like, oh, God. This is really bad. This is this is not going to work. Um, uh, you know, it's it's like in the long goodbye, when um, uh, when Elliot Gould, you know, uh, as Marlowe first discovers, um, uh, oh my God, I've forgotten his name. Uh, in the booby hatch, in at the beginning of the film, Sterling Hayden. Yes, Sterling Hayden, of course. Yeah, when he first discovers Sterling Hayden, it's like the you have a big concern that rescuing this guy might have ramifications for his wife if he's already a guy who is not yeah. exactly um uh, not exactly the most nonviolent um to his 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 partners um but i think that that's what's so interesting is there's no point at any time with jade that when she drops like a bit of information that you're concerned that it's ever going to get back to affect jade whereas there are other people in this movie like when shasta's telling them stuff about wolfman you're like oh this is going to be trouble or when you you know when when Doc's going and, and figuring something out, he's like, or he, or he goes up to the booby hatch himself for the first time. It's like, oh, even being here is a bad idea. 
Or if Koi, if he notices Koi, that's going to blow Koi's cover. Like, that's what's cool about this character is kind of like, she's just, she's just, I, I love her own description of a genie. Like, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's just rubbing the lamp and that's where she's there to just give him, just give him that information. But even, even you, you don't even, I guess, I get it perhaps this is a reason why not to have it, even, in addition to it being a little on the nose. You don't even need that, that long farewell, that big goodbye, that long goodbye that, long goodbye. that she gives. Uh, because it's all in just, you can hear that superiority. It's not smug, it's just what it is. Uh, you hear it just in the way she says, thanks for the lift, boys. <laughs> Which is maybe my, of all, it's a minor bit, but this is this is a podcast <laughs> about inherent vice. It's going to be nothing but minor bits. Probably my favorite delivery of a line by Hong Chow so is cute. just so she says, thanks for the lift, boys. Because they're boys to her. They're boys playing these <laughs> games. Like, she, she's like a real player. She's like an actual plugged-in player. Like, I feel like because, that's how because she's smart. I feel like that's how our narrator cat speaks to us in emails. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. So thanks, thanks for the narration, boys. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know the thing. But that's the thing is Jade, like Vincent Hanna, she's putting out this persona so that she can gain information. And while she's been working the counter of Chick Planet, she's been hearing the comings and goings. She's heard Wolfman talking to to uh, uh, Glenn Sherlock, and she's heard Adrian Prussia talking to Puck Beaverton and his, his tattoo man, it was pulsing. And she's heard the comings and goings, and they, they probably see her as a nobody, as nothing. They, they see her as a small diameter pearl of the Orient rolling around the floor of Lake Capitalism, and they ignore her, and so they feel comfortable talking about around her, and as big men want to do, and you know, to, you know talk about their plans, and in, in front of women and sound important. What is, what's, and, the, what's the line? You might remember it better than me. She's like, where, where, um, she's like, not you dummy, not you dummy. Like in that first scene. <laughs> not you bong brain. Well, I don't think she said, I think, I think actually her, uh, her, her pal says it, but it's, uh, not you bong brain. <laughs> not you bong brain. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, Such a good I, I, and I think that the boy, we've taken a leap connecting her to Vincent Hanna. But I mean, look at look at who the, the people are talking right now. Um, if there's a way to connect this movie to Heat, it's going to happen this episode. But she does have that Hannah thing of of being like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm she she's putting out this persona so that it can collect all this information so it may be used in some fashion in the future. And what I love about Jade, same reason I love Doc, is so many of the characters in this film are forced into a moment where they have to make a choice, and that choice is, do I do the thing that's right for me? with the information that I have. Yes. And it could put me in danger, even though we know Jade's always going to be okay. But do I either take the information I have and do I make a choice that's right for me or do I make the choice that's right for the other guy? And just like Doc, just like Bigfoot, and, and like Koi in a way, Jade in this moment makes the choice that's right for the other guy. Knowingly makes the choice. This, you know, she does that great thing where she looks at Dennis, but then she looks at her other shoulders, like very, very broad move to see if anyone's listening in. But it's her way of saying like, look, I'm putting my ass out here for you to even say this. Like you realize like, this is like a death sentence if, if, if any of us get caught, but she does that and she takes that risk and she takes that moment to, and, and because we know she's probably this, Aside from maybe Crocker Fenway, probably the smartest person in this movie. Crocker <laughs> yeah. Fenway is the Japonica's dad, Japonica's for those dad. who are keeping track on the whiteboard. Uh, you know, she's probably the smartest person in this movie, so she's smart enough to know that telling someone like Doc and Dean is, 
this stuff, it's probably a stupid thing to do. You know, this, this could come back on her and she does it anyway. And that's what, again, to go back, to go back to Drew, uh, it's, 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 what he said, it's, it's little kindnesses. It's these little kindnesses in times of chaos. Uh, it's these little kindnesses that matter the most because they're the most that we can really expend. And yet they could cost us everything. And that's what actually makes them, uh, and we're getting, boy, we're getting a pretentious territory real quick here, but that's <laughs> what makes, that's what makes them so noble. That's what makes them so noble is it's not a big thing that you're risking your life to do. It's a tiny thing that still could cost you your life. And the fact that it's tiny and you're willing to risk everything for it, that's what makes it special, and that's what makes the person special. I was talking to someone last night, and they just, I couldn't get them to understand like why I love detective movies. And I was trying to—I was talking about the nice guys, and I was like, "It's because these two idiots risk their <laughs> lives for next to nothing." Like, it the the, the, the the there's this porn star whose death they're investigating. She's already dead. This is it. Um, there's this. Uh, there's this. this strange conspiracy with catalytic converters and and the detroit auto industry but in the end of the day they're just trying to get a porn movie out they're just <laughs> trying to save a porn movie that might have some information that might bring down one person one person in a house of cards that contains evil thousands and they are willing to risk their lives and their lives of one of their their daughter this this 13 year old daughter of one of the characters they're willing to risk it all to save this porno movie <laughs> that might that might make one iota of a difference somewhere, and that that's enough. And that to me is heroic. And that's you can either be you can either be the dad that's coy that just wants to have the life where he does you know a good thing by being a dad day to day to day and have that, or you want to be the detective who does the one good thing. And that'll be enough to hang on to 50 years from now when you've blown your life, when you, you haven't done anything right, but you can always go back and go, you know, I did that. I made a difference and I risked everything for the tiniest little moment of goodness. Because you, And there's a match. Because we see the and equation though, in does. Inherit Vice. That's, that's one thing that I think you haven't gotten to yet, but I'm excited for you to actually dive into it. It's like, we see the equation. Why does Doc even live in this movie? He already did one good thing. It's not just one. I'm just going to correct you on that. It's not just one. Japonica Fenway's dad sits with him. Sure. That's true. That's even, true. Even takes a seat Stop at the table here. because he's done, he's done good things. And it's that, you know, uh, I, I even think there's a line from sort of where it's like the comic, you know, you know, the, the, the comic look pull of the universe or something like that. It's like, there's something out there around those good things, maybe coming back to pay, pay it forward in unimaginable ways. Like how, how you, how that ebbs and flows, how that changes, how that person's ends up in your car, how you, how that happens. I think that that's that, that beautiful chance that happens all through inherent vice. But as I think it's that like it happens, those one good things. And it's, it's doc could never have knowingly done the thing that was good to know that that's where the equation was going to end. Yeah. It's impossible. But that's what I was, but that's what makes, I think doc in his way. That's what makes him so admirable and lovable is that that wasn't even the one good, Japonica was a gig. It was a gig. He's just a teenage stray. Too much sex, sex to open rock and roll. Got a little wild because he's got to bring her back home to, uh, you know, Orange County. And that's it. Like, it's, it's nothing. That's nothing to him. Like, and of course, you know, you know, bring her back home to, to Papa Crocker might not have actually been the best thing in the world, but he was at least you know, recognizing that he was saving her from a life of being exploited by people like, uh, Rudy, Dr. Rudy, Dr. Rudy Blatnoy DDS. Uh, 
But you're right. But I think what makes Doc special, what makes Doc special is that he's the kind of guy that will do the one good thing and not even consider it the one good thing. So he's got to do another good thing. Although I do think what makes, what I think makes Inherent Vice special, I think the reason why this movie is about this and not about his rescue of Japonica Fenway two years ago or whenever is because I think that this is actually his come to Jesus moment in that, and God, this this truly is the increment vice greatest hit so far. You knew this was coming. (laughs) There's that scene with him and sort of lesion in the kitchen. And it's him realizing, I think that is that scene where she says, you know, what's going to, what's going to nag you when he says the little kid blues, it's him realizing, I think that's him going, you know what, actually this is, this is my moment. Like this is the moment. Like this is what I've been waiting for. He can't see that there's already been a million of them and he's done good the whole time. But I think this is the moment where he goes, Oh shit, this is, if I'm going to shoot my shot, it's going to be here. It's going to be this moment and this time. And that's what makes Doc special is he'll never recognize all the tiny little things, the, the myriad of wonderful things that he's done already. That's what makes him a hero. I see you looking at me and smiling, Blake, because you knew I was going to bring this up. I was smiling because um, what happens in podcasts that go for a long time with guests, and you know this, this was something in the longest episode of One Heat Minute, not the Travis episode, the longest, uh, the 166th part one. Well, technically not really the longest. Not, with, with multiple <laughs> guests, a great, a great litany of guests, Phil Hay. Um, uh, 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 and particularly I wanted to focus on John Glenn. John was a fan of the show for a long time. John came onto the show and uh, he recounted a few things that like repetitions and things that I said. And so I feel like because this is a bit of a greatest hits episode, I think that Anyone who's going back, if this is your first episode of Inherent Vice, thank you for uh, Increment Vice, rather, thank you for being a part of the show. But every single time Travis says "Little Kid Blues" in this show, you need to empty a drink. Like that's my rule. It's like you need to take a shot when he says Vincent and Delicato, but if he says "Little Kid Blues," you got to empty it. So I just was why I was smiling is when you said this. I was like, well, if someone's playing the Increment Vice drinking game, which is a take a shot every time Travis says Vincent and Delicato, and and then it's empty a drink when he says "A Little Kid Blues," I think right then people are just they're flying. Actually, I think there's one other thing. If you're going to do a drinking game of inherent vice, you got to have a big one. Actually, don't do a big one because it'll kill you because of how many times I bring it up. That thing where I talk about how the book is different from the movie and what the movie does, how it inverts the metaphor. And the, I do. I can't help it. I'm so sorry, my lo- my beloved listeners. I'm sorry. I can't help it. It just it comes out. I'm not going to do it this episode. I'm going to withhold. We're going to do. We're going to not do it this episode. There's going to be a a chasmic, a, a chasmic fissure, uh, a, a whistling keyhole emptiness right here in the middle of this episode where I don't use that comparison, but just know that I could have. <laughs> and if I did, you'd have a, you, you'd, you'd have to drink like a whole bottle of wine or something when I throw that one out. Actually, no, you, like, it's the opposite. You do something really, really like, like take like a sip of Budweiser sip. when I do that. Something real, something really watery, domestic. A sip of your um, chaser. <laughs> so, Okay, back to this actual scene that we were talking about. Mm. What, what, again, it's so audacious to just have a, a kickback scene, a hangout scene, a breather scene that is actually not – it is gathering everything that's happened in the past hour, just like where you and I are doing right here. We're, we're kind of pulling all these strands together of the, the past 20 episodes. If the first hour of Inherent Vice is just laying out that something is wrong, Something might be wrong. Something's off here. The second hour of the film explores what 
is wrong. Yeah. It and it di- all dives into it, each of the different strands of the threads we've kind of established at the beginning of the film. But it all starts in this moment, which is both like a an exhausted exhalation of this first hour of weird and woolly setup, but is also a massive inhalation because it, it is the thing that says, oh, by the way, this is a global conspiracy <laughs> that is uh, ruining everyone's lives. By, oh, so this, there's this thing called the Golden Fang, and all of its facets have seeped into our lives, and the American government is hell-bent on sending all of its children to die in Vietnam, as Coy just told us in the last scene, which depresses the populace. And so they then turn to the heroin that America is smuggling out of Vietnam. And then once those junkies have spent all that they can spend on that heroin here in America and are living right next door to death itself, then it's time for them to kick at places like the Criscylodone Institute, which is owned <laughs> by the Golden Fang. So they, take, they get money from there. And then those hey, people the, who best, kick, best they go case, get they, Best case vertical integration, baby. Best case. <laughs> they go, they, that's exactly what it is because then those junkies now that they've kicked their heroin, their, their heroin sapped teeth are, are just these ruined totems of their junkiedom. <laughs> and so like hope, Harlingen, they've got to, <laughs> <laughs> they've got to go to the dentist. They got to go to the dentist and get some pearly new chompers. And who is a cabal <laughs> of, tax shelter dentist, but the golden fucking thing. And so then they go get these nice teeth. And so now they've kicked heroin. They've got these new teeth and they've got this new life, but then they turn on the news. And once again, they see Vietnam, they see Nixon, they see blonde haired, uh, middle-aged men protesting Nixon saying, fuck you. turns out it might just be a government (laughs) snitch named Coy uh, Harlingen and not Rick Doppel. But, but that depression at, at where, American life is not knowing that the thing has made American life that ugly sends them spiraling back to use that thing heroin to go through the process all over again, continually at every moment of their lives when they're rejecting one of these things to go to the next thing, never knowing that the first thing they were rejecting was given to them by the thing. And the thing that they're now taking in lieu of that is also given to them by the thing and that there is no escape from that death cycle of <laughs> uh, late capitalism that is the floor that, that this beautiful pearl named Jade is rolling upon. But can I, and, I think you're so, I think all of the thematic stuff you're so on point with, but I want to talk to you just purely about an aesthetic one just really quickly because right but now. Blake, I was really on a roll there. I, I was I, really on I a know, roll. I know, but I have to get to this point, which is <laughs> it is a fulcrum for the movie, but it's also an aesthetic fulcrum. Because at the same time that it's like exploding everything that you're talking about, about the inherent corruption of this vertically integrated and entangled system, capitalistic monster that it is, it's shot like a 1930s noir. Like it's out the front of a top lit stoop where she's leaning into an American yep. classic car in, in a window where a dame... Stained with shadows. F- you know, with shadows, it, it is the most out of place anti-Los Angeles shot, except excluding potentially the the final shot of the film. And so when I look at this, the language says, the language screams Colombian noir, but what it's saying, what, 
what it's what it's expressing is modernity. So that's what I think you you're right in this moment. Like I, that's why I would say it's like an aesthetic fulcrum as much as it's a thematic fulcrum of the movie because it's going here's LA, but it doesn't even use the language of this local LA noir to say it. It goes back to like a 30s noir trope of like here it is, here's an exposition dump, here's a dame, um, uh, you know, here's a femme fatale potentially, but she's not really that. She's just kind of like this wise genie figure, and then it just goes boom and it just opens and explodes into this into the second half of the movie. But I think it's like right in this moment, is it what you're talking about is where it's, uh, it's, it's rebuilding its momentum. It's finding the talk for the rest of the movie. Yeah. It, it, it's almost hard. To, I mean, this is basically a three act film, but what's interesting is it's basically the first hour is an entire act. The second hour is an entire act. Yes. And then there's this kind of this half hour, uh, denouement at the end where yeah, it's it like just kind of, yeah. <sighs> oh, and by the way, here's what happens with, you know, Koi makes it home and, you know, Shasta shows back up and then it gets kind of foggy, literally. <laughs> but yeah, you, you know, um, but it, it is, it is, is this, the, this big exhalation and inhalation before we dive back in the way Doc dives into Adrian Prussia's, according to Sorley's narration, excuse me, at the end of the film. Uh, but I, I love that you compare this sequence to something out of Noor because, uh, it didn't occur to me until I was thinking about it last night. This is this is the scene in any noir movie, and usually the endings are a little bit different than the one Doc gets, thankfully. But uh, this is the scene where basically someone comes to the hero in a noir movie and goes, hey, 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 you're going to lose. Like, <laughs> yeah. let me explain how big this is to you. Like, you fucking think this is a band? <laughs> like, like, there's a great line. It's like, what's the going thing? Is it a band? And, you know, and she tries to play him off when he asks things like, oh, I don't know, man. But this is the this is the, the moment. It's a crucial moment in any noir movie. Because it's the moment where the hero is told, hey, 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 hey. This is so much bigger than you. You're going to lose. No matter what happens, you can't <laughs> win this. <laughs> yes. This is so much bigger than you thought it was. And a, and a recurring thing that does come up in a lot of these episodes, and I know it's going to come up in a couple of future episodes as well, is the big part of the sadness of Inherent Vice, the novel, is Pynchon looking at all of these social betrayals of the 60s, you know, the death of the Kennedys, the death of King, uh, the, the death of the promise of the 60s, and kind of realizing, oh, the, the, the blood poison, the thing that curdled that promise, the thing that destroyed the 60s, existed so much earlier than we ever thought it did. Like mm -hmm. it was the rot, the gangrene was already in place. The death of the sixties existed before the sixties existed. Yes. The death was always coming. That coming. end was always coming. It was so much bigger than we ever thought when we were, we were protesting Nixon and Kent state and Vietnam that unique American dry rot was already in place. And that death was already had already begun and I feel like this is that moment in the film where she's like, look, this, this you think you're going to get a guy out of here? You think you're going to take this down and rescue your girl? <laughs> like, do you not understand that this is so much, this is bigger than Nixon. This is bigger than America. This is everything wrong with human life all <laughs> gathered under one golden peaked roof. <laughs> and you think you're gonna? You're, you're, he's over here talking to uh, you know Coy in the, in the last scene so naively saying, oh, you know, maybe there's moves I can make you and thought of because I'm on the outside. He does it with well, the scariest, saddest thing about Doc is he doesn't realize there is no outside. 
of the golden thing. Everything happens within that golden triangle. And that's the, the, that's, I think what she, you know, something that Jade is trying to say is like, you're not outside of this. You're in it. We're all in it. It encompasses everything. You're, you're maybe not in it if you're living on the moon, but right here, (laughs) right here in sunny Los Angeles and Gordita beach, you're, you're right in the middle of this pipeline, man. You're right dead center in this golden triangle. You're not going to win. And that is such a noir thing to do. And I love that you said it's shot like, you know, one of those great Colombian noirs, those slate grays and those bright whites and blacks. And that's exactly what the scene is. This is a pure noir moment of you're the loser detective. There's no way you win this. So right now as we're basically in the middle of this show and you're right in the middle of the golden triangle, do you need me to, you know, give you a bit of uh, uh, Tony Scott, last boy scout pep talk right now? <laughs> Nobody likes you. Everyone hates you. You're gonna lose. Smile, you fuck. Like this is you've Smile, still got you you've still got 25 episodes of this show to go, baby. <laughs> oh god, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. <laughs> We're almost there, gang. We're almost there. We got some cool guests coming up. We got some cool stuff happening. But oh my god, 25 episodes. You're right there. Oh, man. you're right there. He's a he's a harsh taskmaster. Taskmaster, my my producer here. He he he's wearing me down. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. <laughs> it's all product to him. He's the thing. Hey, hey. I'm just pipeline. Uh, no, one hit minute productions is not the golden <laughs> thing. No. I love how he is not expressed to they're not do not reflect one hit <laughs> anyway. <laughs> no, we're not the golden thing. But it's exciting because right now, um, you know, I, I feel I feel like I feel like Jade. Like this we're we're laying it out. There's so much but you've you've unlocked I think you've had revelations, which is awesome. You've had like revelations that, you know, took me longer to get to just by virtue of the fact that you've had denser scenes and you've had amazing guests. And I think that that the richness of the people that have been on the show so far talking to you, myself excluded, um, is, 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 is really incredible. And I think that like seeing this incredible text with fresh eyes and occasionally, um, with fresh frozen banana uh, uh, chewing uh, happening on the show. Never again. Never again. <laughs> uh, I think it's. Um. I think it's. I think it's exactly what you needed to get to this point. You're now at the fulcrum. You're on the downhill slope, my friend. <laughs> well, yeah. There's some great stuff coming up. I'm very excited for it, and I do feel like you know, I, I, I was, I was nervous coming into this scene. All this, just it's this one minute little scene. And I was even nervous about this because I was like, well, what are we going to talk about? And then just, again, hearing it, seeing it through your eyes, hearing it through your the dulcet tones of your voice, <laughs> and, and able to, you know, you're able to see that, yeah, oh, wow, this is such a, this is even, that's what's so amazing about this movie is even a, a not even 60 second bit of expo, pure exposition, uh, you know, very, very simply framed, a, a gal standing outside of a car, literally the most bare bones exposition you've ever heard. There's a guest coming on uh, in the future whose episode has been recorded. And he had this great moment where, and he meant it as a compliment. He's like, I've never seen a movie that hates its own exposition more. And it's so, or not hate, but it's so dismissive of its own exposition to just say, yeah, whatever. Here it is. It's it's a golden thing. The bad guys, it's heroin. And while that's a, that's a good line. I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's dismissive. It's just, I think that PT is like, how can we use this in the most interesting way possible? We have to deliver it. We have to have the moment where we just admit, okay, we, we have to give this to the audience straight. No chase. We just give it to them. We got to say it. What can we do? This is interesting. And I think that part of the, part of his brilliance 
is to frame it in this scene this way to make this simple 50 second moment be exactly what we said it was it's both that in that exhalation of like oh shit man we just did a weird hour like we just did a weird ass <laughs> hour of 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 weird like detective romantic sad 60s into the decade stuff oh boy and it was all set up like we only get to the the barest wisps of a plot the golden fang stuff right at the very end of that hour but it's also this inhalation of okay we've told you that something is wrong now that we've identified there's this thing called the thing all we're going to do is systematically see how it's infected and destroyed everything that these people love and that is so ingenious to use this as you said this this fulcrum to do that and yeah it's great you know what you know i'm gonna say it right now this is a pretty good movie and i recommend (laughs) this is a sharp little flick it's not bad and and the the fact that even a a scene like this in any other movie would be the fast forward scene it would be uh, I, I think I've said this before. You, when you see Springsteen, there's always that, there's the piss break song. It's like when he plays <laughs> waiting on a sunny day, you know, like, okay, I can go. I, I can miss this. This is like, this. in any other movie, this would be the popcorn or piss break scene in the theater. Like, okay, uh, you, you look at your girl, like, just tell me what happens when I get back. All right, I think but he makes it something interesting, as with every other thing in this movie. There are whole movies that, that are piss break movies work. as well, just let's be super clear. <laughs> I watched, I watched, I watched, I watched Domino the other day and that's a piss break movie. Like that movie Mm -hmm. is like, like that's a, well, um, you know, uh, buddy, we, we've been, we've had a fun episode here. (laughs) I don't want somewhere dark. And if you're going to start, you're going to start talking about my main man. You're going to talk about Tony that way. You know, there's, there's, there's things going on in that movie that are interesting. It's not perfect, but there's interesting things happening and I'm not, we're not going to do this. We do this. Every, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. We're not going to. I'm we're sorry. Not gonna I took this down. We're not going to fight. Don't bite. Don't bite. Don't bite. I didn't mean to go fishing. You were wrapping up. <laughs> I was wrapping. We had such a great wrap up. And look what you did. <laughs> this is again. This is. I would normally say Blake cut all this out, but no. You. You guys are going to see our relationship warts and all in this episode. You're going to see how he speaks to me. Um, <laughs> but that said, yeah. The, the, any other movie, this would be just the. Oh God, just have her say something, unless let's just, just move on. And instead, it becomes this incredible mysterious strange funny wacky little short film and that's the thing that i think i've learned more than anything else going through this is how each of these scenes and it may this maybe should seem obvious to me but i you know i I view scenes as like part of a cohesive whole this film seems so modular in that so many of these scenes on a scene-by-scene basis they're so strong and powerful and not to sound like i'm trying to go that's why you should listen to a podcast like increment vice but when you do break this film down to its component parts and you start looking at it more as a scene by scene by scene story and 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 stop trying to get your arms around the totality of it it is so thrilling and interesting and thematically rich and thematically dense and far more digestible and you begin to see how each of these scenes at first might seem kind of hazy and weird and what the hell was that all of a sudden you're like oh that's the that's the inhalation. That's, that's the fulcrum. This is the pivot point, and that's that's amazing. And that's and one of the myriad of reasons why I love this film, why I love talking about this film, and why I'm going to keep talking about this film for at least 25 more episodes, <laughs> or until Blake works me to my sad sad death. <laughs> On that note, brother, thank you for coming back and talking about movies with me. Something I love doing, just talking about movies with you. And I got to say thank you to everybody who's been listening so far and people that reach out, talk to us and send us cool things on Twitter and thank put up with everyone. warbling 
my warbling about this movie and my repetitions and how I have you guys ever noticed that what's interesting about the film is it takes the <laughs> metaphor book. You guys ever noticed that? Anyway, I appreciate everyone who's listened. And uh, anyone who's not listening anymore, you can all go to hell. <laughs> and again, one opinions uh, expressed today do not reflect that. No, that one I'll take. That one I'll take. That's good. <laughs> but on that note, I appreciate everyone coming this far with us. Uh, I, and I think that we've got some uh, even wilder and weirder stuff coming up. We're going to have a lot of fun. And until then, thank you, Jake. Or thank you. I was going to call you Jake. I was thinking of uh, Chinatown. <laughs> Thank you, Blake. Although you'd make you'd make a good Jake. I think you'd make you'd be good. Yeah, in my Jack nose now, has been my, my nose has been broken like Jack's in that movie. So uh, uh, I'll cut. That's gonna know. be. A, we'll talk about that on your third increment by itself. So <laughs> save that one. Save that. Save that. Thank you for coming on. You're Thank welcome. you, everyone, for listening. And please join me next time, where myself and a very special guest are going to decide it's finally time to once again pay a visit to our old pal Bigfoot. And maybe, just maybe, we'll even talk about his long-gone partner, Vincent and Delicato. So here's Travis. Midnight, pitch dark, right on the cusp of another hour. Can't remember if they drained the pool or not. But hey, what the fuck's it matter? So he bounced once twice and then off the end of the board in a blind cannonball down into old karma once again with inherent vice will he make it back to the surface for another hour-long lap we'll see what we can see next time on increment vice